Okay, well, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Ricardo Reis, and I'm this guy over here, but I'm not, I'm just the um, host, because the really great star that we have here with us is Professor Bob Schiller, who very kindly has come to the LSE to present us his new book. Um, Bob really needs no introduction. He's pretty much won every prize, every honor that the economics profession could bestow on anyone, on, on people, and those are all extremely deserved. And on top of that, he's also become very distinguished and recognized through a series of uh, uh, prizes and awards beyond the economics profession from academia as well as society at large. Of his many, many, many honors, one that often gets attention, and so I'd be incompetent to mention it, is that he did win the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics for his empirical analysis of asset prices. Um, Bob earned his PhD from MIT all the way back in 1972, but he's been at Yale from 1982 onwards, I think in the last 15 or more years, as the Sterling Professor, which is the highest honor that Yale bestows on its academics, or one of the highest honors, I think. Uh, aside from many, many papers and many scientific contributions they gave the Nobel Prize, Bob, especially, since, especially in the last 20 years, has been writing books at an incredible pace. Uh, initially in the 90s with a series of very academic books. I still have a copy of, my own copy of his 1993 book on macro markets, which I, is one of those lovely books for those of you who are doing graduate studies in economics that you read every couple of years and you get yet a new insight from it. It's been, been a very inspiring book, certainly for me. And then over, now in the, and now somewhat more recently, he's been writing quite a series of books for a more general audience. Irrational Exuberance was a great bestseller, The New Financial Order, The Subprime Solution, uh, Finance for a Good Society, and with George Akerlof, um, Animal Spirits and Fishing for Fools, all books that have been very influential in the public debate and which are full of insight. He also writes regularly for both Project Syndicate as well as the New York Times. And finally, or, or, there is no finally when it comes to, to honoring Bob, uh, he's also been a very practical academic. Not only has he been an academic, a communicator to the public, but he's also been a very practical um, and entrepreneurial um, uh, contributor to society, both through the creation of the famous Case and Schiller Index, or nowadays Standard and Poor's Case and Schiller Index, which is the index of housing prices that is used a little bit all over uh, to assess the state of the housing market in the U.S., but is also the methodology of that has been expanded. And so that's a very clear, it's great when you can go to Bloomberg and download the Schiller Index or the Case-Schiller Index and not download the actual person, but a series of numbers, as well as in academia through his uh, stewardship and creation for many years of the Behavioral Macroeconomics Group at the NBR. That's where I first met Bob, I think all the way back in 2001. He was extremely important for a series of young academics like myself of providing a venue where uh, alternative ways to think about macro, in that, that case it was behavioral macro, were not an excuse to whine, were not an excuse to complain, but were where a lot of productive work was being done and trying to make a lot of progress. Without further ado, I'm gonna introduce Bob. This book that's just, just been launched, it's outside. For those of you who wanna grab a copy, and I think he'll, he'll please us by staying a few minutes if you want your copy to be signed uh, at the end. And I think the only thing that I was told to say is that if you tweet about it or things, it's hashtag LSE Schiller. So we've already claimed you as one of us, Bob. You're now LSE Schiller. But without further ado, Bob Schiller. Thank you.
Well, maybe it doesn't work. <laughs> we have a clicker, but one that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, and the keyboard. Keyboard. All right. Well, thank you, Ricardo. I'm very pleased to be here and get an opportunity to talk to all of you. Uh, I'm going to make an audacious claim at the beginning that the uh, economics and finance professions are undergoing a revolution that has just begun to become more attuned to reality in uh, macroeconomics and other parts of economics by incorporating narratives into the discipline. Uh, let me just define a narrative is a telling of a story. A story is a chronology of events, and it can be a good or a bad story. A narrative is attaching significance, meaning, and emotion to the story. Uh, psychologists have claimed that narratives are fundamental to the human race. We all have a narrative of our own life, which picks out significant events in it and becomes defining of who I am. And that narrative is very important. But beyond that, it's other narratives are, uh, can be important. We, are, we have a huge number of narratives that are circulating amongst us through interpersonal communication. Um, most of them are garbagey nar narratives that have no economic significance. But a small fraction of them are what I'm calling economic narratives in my new book, Narrative Economics. Uh, that is that affect people's economic decisions. So I think that there is beginning of a, uh, there's beginning of a science here in economics to uh, study how people's thinking about economics changes and drop the unrealistic assumption that people are consistent maximizers of an unchanging utility function. Uh, you have to observe the changes. It's, uh, it's hard to observe what people think about the economy, just as it's hard to uh, observe what people think about their philosophy of life. Ask someone, what is your philosophy of life? And you probably won't get much of an answer. Uh, one criminologist said it very succinctly, who was trying to study how prisoners think, how criminals think. And he tried asking them, what is your philosophy of life when visiting a prison? and didn't get a great response, but then discovered how you do find it. They do have a philosophy of life. The way you do it is you point to another criminal in the prison and say, how did he get in here? What did he do? And it turns out they all know what crime the other people had committed. And you'll hear a long narrative of this person's life as a criminal. And it will have moral overtones. It'll come out. Criminals don't think of themselves as bad people, generally. And so we, we want to listen to narratives as an approach to studying economics. Now, this is a belated revolution in economics. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm going to talk. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't try to talk without my slides jumping ahead. This is my book, Narrative Economics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the picture, I like the artist who did, I didn't do the cover, but it shows uh, epidemic curves, which we're going to come back to. On the Narratives go viral, and the, uh, the important narratives are, in fact, they go viral over the whole world now, uh, because communications have gotten so good. It 
just as diseases go viral over the whole world because we travel. Narratives can go even faster. You don't have to travel to spread your, your viral narrative around the world. So, uh, yeah, I, I was going to start with an uh, outline. I'm going to talk about the idea of narrative economics, where it comes from. Uh, and uh, uh, a particularly important is medical epidemiology. The phrase go viral is an analogy to what happens in diseases. Uh, and there's a whole mathematical theory of epidemiology that's 100 years old now. It's like uh, a venerable old discipline that we, uh, some economists are using it, uh, but the full force of it hasn't, I think, been revealed yet. Uh, and then one concept that I'm going to introduce here uh, is analogous to what happens in some literature departments. Some literary scholars talk about core stories or perennial stories in literature. The same story gets told many, many times with variations. For example, everyone likes mystery stories. A lot of people like mystery stories. And so these, uh, the whodunit is, an, is a genre of, but they are constantly changing. It's the same with diseases who go by. Influenza is not one disease. It's a grouping of diseases that are all similar and they branch from each other by mutation. Same thing with narratives. They, they occur, I call them in constellations. I'll come back to that. Uh, and they mutate and uh, become newly epidemic. Uh, my book has uh, nine examples of economic narratives in history, and it's kind of a history thing. Uh, but they are, but the, the theme is that they reoccur and they bring on economic uh, changes. Uh, they reoccur, not cyclically, but when mutations occur or when the environment changes to bring them on. And uh, finally, I want to just talk about the future of this revolution. Um, I, I, I think that data sources are fundamental causes of revolutions in, in science. Uh, so the uh, Keynesian revolution, which began uh, in the 1930s, was, was made possible by uh, advent of data like gross, gross domestic product, unemployment rates, inflation rates. Uh, these things were starting to appear as time series. And it led to decades of research that took its form from the availability of this data. I think that the new data that's driving us now, which is going to start, and that, that revolution lasted decades. It's still going, I guess. Uh, but uh, I'm going to talk about a revolution caused by the digitization of speech uh, and the ability to search and use natural language processing to identify what the narratives are. And now we, we can see these things. They aren't hypothetical anymore. And so I think that uh, my book is just kind of like a research proposal uh, because I know that I haven't hardly scratched the surface of the complexity that we can get at. So let me just define uh, narrative economics. Uh, the Palgrave Dictionary of Political Economy, whose first edition was in 1894, uh, mentions narrative economics. Uh, so it's an older term, but it's not what I mean exactly. Uh, narrative economics in the Palgrave Dictionary 
is economic research that takes the form of telling a narrative about economic events. So if you write a discussion of the uh, depression of the 1890s and you list the chronology, this bank failed, then, then there was this strike, and then there was this. That's narrative economics in the old definition. Narrative economics used to mean writing our own narrative of the crisis. And it's considered useful. I suppose it is useful to read narratives and chronologies. Um, but for me, it's, I have a completely different meaning. Narrative economics is studying the popular narratives that went viral, that changed things. And, and uh, ideas that uh, became contagious. And it would be grounded in epidemiological models of, of contagion. Uh, so, I, I, again, I'm mentioning here constellations of narratives. They tend to occur in groups. Also, big events are occurred because of confluences of narratives. This has to be kept firmly in mind. It's not one narrative that accounts for the Great Depression or for the, the great financial crisis that occurred 10 years ago. It's because there were, it's a perfect storm where many different, independent, they're not part of a constellation, they just happen to occur together and that made things really bad. So we're often asked as economists to explain the big things, not the little things. And there's an attempt to look at existing data on unemployment rates or whatever and say, well, we've got a lot of monthly data, um, it, but it doesn't reveal the story that created the, the event that we're trying to understand. Uh, so we'll attempt to quantify narratives, and I think this is happening now among many people, but it's not a, a, a big thing yet in the econ profession. So I wanted to uh, first compare the econ profession with other academic disciplines. So now here I'm using already a uh, database, searchable database. JSTOR has uh, uh, texts of uh, a, a scholarly journal articles. They arrange them by subject field. Uh, and uh, I can search. Uh, the, the database goes back typically to the beginning of the journals. Uh, it's a wonderful database. You, you're probably onto it. Uh, but uh, the black uh, bar here is the percent of articles for the discipline in question that have the word narrative in it. Uh, and uh, for anthropology, economics, finance, history, political science, psychology, and sociology. And the, uh, the thing that jumps out at me is uh, economics and finance are the worst for understanding the importance of narratives. Now, maybe they're superior. We're called the queen of the social sciences by many people because we don't have to get in with this fuzzy stuff about narratives. I, 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 have, I share that feeling somewhat. We have an elegant discipline, but the problem is reality isn't exactly captured by models that don't take account uh, of narratives. The gray bars here are for the, last, the, the current decade, from 2010 to the present. Uh, the significant thing is that every single one of these disciplines has turned more toward narratives. Uh, now, why is that? The first thought is maybe they're getting more enlightened and looking at reality. Uh, but the second uh, thought is, well, maybe it's just these databases that are available. That's part of the explanation anyway. 
we're all searching, we can search better. And it's, we live in a different uh, research environment. Uh, we're still prejudiced against it though. Economists don't like to talk about narratives uh, because the, in years past, you couldn't talk about a narrative except in an anecdotal way because there was no way to quantify it. You could say, well, the taxi driver this morning said something and I thought it was interesting that he would say that. But that's only one observation. You know, we know that that's not, uh, that, that's, on the other hand, when you get back home and you think about it, that taxi driver influences you. People really are saying this. Um, but we can be more scientific now. And the second chapter of my book is entitled An Adventure in Consilience. I, I hesitated to name the chapter of this because I thought someone could make fun of this. <laughs> this, is an, this book is an adventure. But it was an adventure for me. Uh, and I, I ought to define the word consilient. Many of you know it, but let me just... The word consilience was uh, coined by William Hewell, uh, who is a uh, professor at Trinity College. Uh, and uh, it means the unity of knowledge. His specialty was philosophy of science. And uh, uh, it, it, his theme was... So that's uh, Hewell. Uh, uh, the biologist E.O. Wilson wrote a book in 1998 entitled Consilience, and he attributes the basic idea to Hewell. Uh, but uh, Wilson's point was the unity of knowledge among the differing academic disciplines, especially between the sciences and the humanities, is important. And um, he, he's famous for his research on ants, ant societies. So if you want to... And, and the economics of an anthill, okay? If you want to understand human society, it helps to look at another example. This is really a fundamental, uh, it's fun to read him. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. So all of those fields that were shown in the previous slide are uh, involved for me. Uh, even things like literature, because narratives are hard to, it's hard to know what makes a narrative uh, Viral. How does it? What? What is it about it? Uh, you have to start reading. I was influenced somewhat by literature department people, but it's it's all over. Um, so I want to go to the medical school first uh, among fields and look at the um, look at just as an example of an epidemic. So um, here is an outbreak of Ebola in uh, Lofa County, Liberia data provided by the Center for Disease Control. Uh, so the Ebola epidemic is not one event. There's many sub-epidemics that occur in geographically different areas. So in Lofa County, it, the disease suddenly appeared. That's week, week number one. And then it grew for 10 weeks and then started declining. And it makes a nice bell-shaped curve or hump pattern. Uh, and then it seems to ask them to disappear. Now, in Lofa County, modern epidemics involve medical people almost inevitably. And so part of the reason it declined eventually was the medical people arrived in the village and quarantined people and prevented the further spread of it. But epidemics that are untreated will also disappear eventually because of, uh, well, the models will imply that. Let me, I'll come back to that. Um, but I want to go immediately. That was a disease epidemic. That was a virus. Uh, 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 now let's talk about 
economic narratives. So I have two here plotted on the same plot. They look a little more smashed together because I wanted to get the whole. This is every year since eight, from 1850. Well, actually, my data, they don't start until 1870s uh, until the present. So the bimetallism epidemic, you all remember that, right? Maybe not. <laughs> uh, they had a big international conference in London in 1894 on bimetallism. So it was popular. It was growing in Europe and the New World, the United States. And then it went absolutely viral. And it was somewhat geographic. It was uh, the United States that really got into this. And uh, it was associated with a depression, the depression of the 1890s. And I think there's a connection. Um, so uh, why was it so viral? I can just report what people said in newspaper articles about it. It was geographical. Biometallism was supported by the hinterlands, not the big cities, not the coast, the east coast. There wasn't as much of a west coast in the United States then. Uh, and the smug intellectuals looked down on the biometallism supporters and said, often described them as stupid. And they, they didn't like... Uh, a reporter traveling through the Midwest of the United States said, Everybody wants to talk about bimetallism. Uh, why is it? It's, it's crazy. So it, it, well, it reminds me a little bit of Brexit. I could have put Brexit on this chart <laughs> as well. I missed that in my book. But let's talk about this one. You've heard of this one. You've heard. These all start with B. <laughs> They're all one word names that I can search. This is the Bitcoin epidemic. And why did it uh, go viral? Uh, again, it's, uh, it's, it's a mystery. I, I'm going to come back to bimetallism, but it's a mystery because uh, it's like, the, what, what makes a hit song go viral? I mean, can anyone know uh, what, if you were to play next year's songs that were coming out, could you pick the one that goes viral? Uh, I think it's very difficult. The, the literature department will tell you that it's very hard to predict which novel goes viral. There are people who are now doing computer analysis and trying to do that. But Bitcoin is an innovation in computer technology, you could say. Um, it's, it's impressive to read Satoshi Nakamoto's paper. He was a smart guy. Uh, but it's different from almost all the other uh, disciplines that have uh, uh, technology, reveal technology. Because Bitcoin is just so much more excited, uh, exciting than others. I'm trying to find. So, like, for example, this thing, your flash drive. Do you have any idea who invented this? Do you have any idea how it works? It's impressive. This is really important. But it just never went viral, the story of it. Nobody cares. What? <laughs> There's some proud man who thinks he invented this. <laughs> but there's something about Bitcoin. I think it's the quality of the story. Uh, maybe the story was invented by some... The, the, the peculiar thing about Bitcoin is that nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. How can it be that you invent Bitcoin and then nobody in the world remembers having met you? So maybe Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym. Maybe this person had a gift for understanding viral narratives and thought, Hey, I'll just stay, stay silent, and I'll be the mystery man, and that will help promote my product. 
he might even be a billionaire from having done this. It matters what you do. So, uh, and another thing about this story is it also amplifies an old narrative that goes back uh, to Proudhon in the early 19th century called anarchism. There's a lot of people who resent the government and they want to see stories about how we the people without any government will work things out and everything will be great. And they, they get, anarchists got the same complaint that they're stupid. You can't live without government. Uh, but this, now they look brilliant. So there's something about the Bitcoin story that made it viral. So uh, here's an epidemic. This is the classic first, I think this launched a, a, a whole literature in epidemiology. Kermack and McKendrick in 1927 devised the first, it's called the compartmental model or SIR model, uh, where the, you divide the population uh, into uh, three compartments. Uh, this is for a disease that nobody dies of. There's no growth in the population. This is a very stripped down model. Uh, uh, there's three compartments. Susceptibles are people who haven't caught it yet, that's S. Infected are people who are, have caught it and are spreading it. And recovers are people who uh, have gotten over it. And he assumes, they assume, that you'll, you're perpetually immune now. You could bring in breakdown of immunity. There's hundreds of variations of this model. But the basic idea is that for an epidemic to grow, DIDT has to be positive. That means that the contagion rate has to be above the recovery rate. The contagion rate is a constant parameter C times the number of, well, I'm doing N equals one, 100%. So uh, the contagion rate is the percent who are susceptible. CS then becomes the, the rate of growth of infective if there were no recoveries, and then they get over it at a rate R, recovery rate. So the contagion rate, CS, has to be greater than R, or you won't have an epidemic. So what brings on things like that Lofa County epidemic, there was something that affected the contagion rate. Who knows what? They might have been together indoors more, so they were meeting each other. Or they might have had dancing, and they touched each other. I don't know. It's hard to figure it out, but something pushed this up. And then it mysteriously out of, mysteriously out of nowhere, uh, the uh, outbreak continues. But it's the same for, for, uh, uh, for economic narratives, I think. So economic narratives suddenly become contagious when there's a mutation. So in order to make a mute, one way of mutating a narrative is to attach it to a celebrity. Make it that Boris Johnson said it and that it suddenly becomes contagious. Uh, or, uh, but maybe that doesn't work. You know, it's, it's something that uh, there are some people who are good at the humanities and uh, politicians tend to be people who are astute observers of what might go viral. That's how they get there. This is a, this is a solution to the Kermack-McKendrick model. When we introduce one person with the disease in a population of a million. So the initial condition is that the uh, I, uh, in initial infectives are 0.0001% of the population. And I picked C equal 0.5 and R equal 0.05. And you get this beautiful hump-shaped curve. This is on the cover of my book. It's called the epidemic curve. Uh, and uh, this is the, the decline of susceptibles. 
because they're all almost in this case almost everyone catches it, but no one it's never everyone. And this is the recovered. So you see these things again and again in uh, examples of when you search for terms. Let me confront the issue of causality. I'm wondering about my time. Seven. What? I have like 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, economists these days are rightfully very concerned about causality, and I am claiming that narratives cause changes in the economy. So economists will say, how do you know? How do you infer causality? And I don't have maybe the best answer for this, but I do have an answer to this. That is, you can run controlled experiments easily outside of economics. And the same forces of narratives should show up in controlled experiments. So uh, these are examples from marketing, journalism, education, health, philanthropy, and law. These are examples of narrative, uh, controlled experiments, seeing whether narratives make a difference. I'll just mention one. I'll take this last one. Bell et al. in 1985 were experimenting with how you can convict a criminal, uh, an accused. And they, they had mock trials where the students would pretend to be juries. And uh, they would present the same evidence two different ways. One in a, in a uh, narrative form and the other in a uh, factual form. And the, the, in, the, in the narrative, what sticks in my, it still sticks in my mind from their article. In, in, in the narrative form that they tried in one of their cases, it contained the line, the accused then lunged at the victim in the, in the process, knocking over a bowl of guacamole dip upside down on the white shag carpet. Okay, now the fact that the accused knocked over a bowl of guacamole dip cannot possibly be relevant to the uh, conviction. But it just made them think about it. It made it vivid for them. Uh, this goes back. This is not a new result, by the way. If you look at uh, Cicero, the ancient Roman, 2,000 years ago, he has a book on rhetoric. And he says, put visual images into your uh, into your." Uh, speeches, it'll be remembered better. So it's not new. This is about constellations of narratives. Uh, a, lo a lot of narratives, uh, there's maybe thousands or millions of narratives that are all built around a theme and reinforce each other. The epidemiologists call it co-epidemics. If one disease encourages the contagion of another disease and, and in reverse, that's a co-epidemic. So, for example, we've seen a co-epidemic of tuberculosis and AIDS. Uh, it's been noted that those two diseases uh, occur together because they help each other be contagious. Uh, I find this chart a little depressing. This is, this is my counts using uh, Google engrams of um, various economic models. I picked models that were developed a long time ago. Uh, so I've got the ISLM model, the real business cycle model, the overlapping generations model, and the multiplier accelerator model. Uh, those are all venerable economic models. Uh, what, what is their attention? Uh, it, this is searching books. Um, every one of them is hump-shaped. Every one of them looks like a hump-shaped, like an epidemic curve. And they even have a property. Here's the, um, for example, this double line one. That's uh, 
that's Samuelson's multiplier accelerator model. He published it in 1939, which is just right here at the beginning of my uh, data. And there was no talk about his, his article for a decade. Well, I wouldn't say no talk, but it doesn't show up on here. And it was growing exponentially. And then it, it reached this huge peak in around 1960. And then it just decays away after that. I find this depressing because uh, you like to think that you're seeking truth and you've made a triumphant uh, addition to the stock of world knowledge, but you haven't. It's just another <laughs> epidemic. And I, I think all of these models are interesting, and they're not, none of them is absolutely right, so you should be, I don't know if you've learned all these models, but I suspect that many of you haven't, looking at the way it's going in the... Uh, so... Um, uh, that's the multiplier accelerator. It is a feedback system, but it's mechanical. It works through multiple rounds of expenditure defined by Keynes. When, when someone spends money, it becomes income of another person, which part of which is spent. Uh, and uh, it can lead to even hump-shaped patterns. This is from that same 1939 article by Samuelson. shows a hump-shaped pattern. Uh, feedback matters. I think that these models are interesting and, but we have to augment them with the other kind of feedback, the feedback of changed ideas. Uh, and this idea that the marginal propensity to consume is constant doesn't sound right to me at all. Uh, it, it maybe as a very first approximation, but it can lead to big errors. So I wanted to give you another example of a, a narrative. Uh, in 1974, uh, Art Laffer, who is a professional economist, uh, had a dinner with... Uh, uh, I don't know if you recognize the name, Dick Cheney, who was soon to become Vice President of the United States, and Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense. And in the dinner, he drew this diagram. Those guys are non-economists, by the way. He's making it very simple, simple economic. So he drew this diagram. On this axis is revenues, tax revenues, and on this axis is the tax rate. We're talking about an income tax. And so Art Laffer, on the napkin, said, showing them at dinner, uh, at 0% tax rate, you don't collect any taxes. But also at 100% tax rate, you don't collect any tax. No one would work if you're going to tax all of it. So the, the curve relating expenditure to tax rates must be hump-shaped. He drew it sideways. I, I don't know why, but that's what he did. And so if you wanted to raise a certain revenue of 1,000, there's always two tax rates that will do it. This is this one here with the tax rate of 90% is the Democratic tax rate. <laughs> and this is a Republican tax rate. Now, I got laughter from you. It's kind of a joke. A joke is one kind of economic narrative. This was a powerful economic narrative. So they had dinner together in 1974, and it lay dormant until 1978. And uh, uh, Jude Waniski, who's a great writer, wrote a book called The Way the World Works for the general public. And he told the whole story of the napkin and everything. So uh, 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 later, uh, uh, this, this went viral. And I think it has something to do with Margaret Thatcher's becoming prime minister here. Everyone was, a lot of people were talking about this story in the UK. And then Ronald Reagan, these are all tax cutting people in 1980. It changed the whole economy. I, now I'm not saying it was only this. There are other, it, other narratives in the constellation. But the, the, the kicker on this is 
Many years later, the American Museum of Natural History was looking for economic exhibits. Now I'm sorry, the American, the National Museum of American History. Uh, uh, Jude Winiski had died in the interim. They called Jude Winiski's wife and asked her, could you look around? Is there a napkin with a curve drawn on it? <laughs> and then she said, I don't know. I'll look at his things. And then she called back and said, yes, I found it. Here's the napkin. It was a cloth napkin with this diagram on it. So then triumphantly, it's now you can find it on the web. This is a major exhibit for the museum. <laughs> but the, there's one problem. Uh, someone called Art Laffer and mentioned this. And Art Laffer said, I don't believe it. He's the guy who drew it. Art Laffer said, my mother taught me don't write on nice things like nap cloth napkins. But it does, even this, most people remember the napkin because that's a visual image that makes the story better. So um, this is famous economists. I find this the most depressing chart <laughs> because they're all, they're all hump-shaped and they, they all... Uh, you, you've been imagining up until now that you'll be famous forever, eventually. <laughs> if you're lucky, you can outlive yourself. So where is Adam Smith? Well, I didn't put Adam Smith on this. He's really enduring, though. Henry George, but have you ever even heard of him? He was big in the 19th century, and now he's dwindling. He's still there, sort of. Uh, this is just, seems to me there's a basic reality here. So I'm, I'm going to talk about narratives that went viral uh, and um, in my book, I list nine of them, but this is by no means an exhaustive list. But they're just narratives that have come up. And I'm calling them perennial narratives because they've lasted a long time. And uh, they, uh, uh, they, but they, they mutate and become viral again. And then economic events uh, uh, then form around them. So uh, let me start with uh, panic. Uh, here I have plotted from uh, Google engrams for the years 1800 to 2000. Uh, the Panic of 1837, the Panic of 1857, the Panic of 1873, the Panic of 1893, and the Panic of 1907. Uh, now, what strikes me, this is a constellation of narratives because they kind of move together. You'd think the dates, 1837, 1857, would really jump out at you. But it isn't so. They're all going, growing together. So back in 1837, nobody said the Panic of 1837. And then 1857, well, they're starting to talk a little bit about the Panic of 1837. And then it just accelerates until the last of these panics was in 1907. They're all moving up together. That's a constellation of narratives. So I think that it reflected, why did it go viral? I think it partly reflected growing psychological sophistication of the population uh, the, when you say pan now back in 1837 you'll find lots of articles about bank failures but they don't talk so much about people panicking and I think this is a some extent a self-fulfilling prophecy the story of a bank run is a story that people are afraid they won't be able to get their money out of the bank soon enough you know the story the word of mouth was did you see that line of people out in front of the Eagle Bank uh, you better get right over there and take your money out because it's going to run out. Uh, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if people believe that. And as the, as the 19th century wore on, there was more and more attention to that. And so panicking, 
uh, earlier bank runs, uh, or they weren't bank runs, they were just failures of banks, were interpreted in a different way. So another example is confidence. The, this is, uh, I have, uh, well, financial panic is the 19th century version of the psychology. But then business confidence came later. That's this solid line. And consumer confidence came even later. So why was nobody talking about consumer confidence before around 1940? Well, I think the, uh, it's, it's some changing perceptions about what matters. Uh, maybe people thought consumers spend their, all their money, don't they? Well, they don't have in practice the idea that you wouldn't. Uh, well, I, I don't have a complete answer why these things happened when they did. But uh, So the, the Great Depression, during the Great Depression, was often attributed to a confidence problem. And the, the line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You heard this? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But it isn't his, he was quoting somebody else loosely. I find it earlier. But, but our, our narrative become contagious when they connect with a celebrity. And now Franklin Delano Roosevelt is much more famous than William Howard Taft, whom you've never heard of, another president around that time, because the narrative built up around him. And uh, the, the Great Depression narrative is, to us, largely a confidence narrative. <clears throat> Look what happened to Great Depression. This is searching in both books and news and newspapers. But my book database ends in 2008. So we don't see the great, the recent financial crisis. But if you look during the Great Depression, um, nobody uh, was talking about Great Depression, <laughs> which is ironic because in 1934, Lionel Robbins was he a professor here at LSE? I think was, he was. Absolutely. He wrote a book called The Great Depression in 1934. And since we hold Lionel Robbins in such esteem, we easily imagine that people read that book in 1934, and some of them did, but it wasn't viral. It kind of got viral gradually. It was a, uh, the, the, the Kermack-McKendrick model and variants of it imply that you can have both fast and slow epidemics. Uh, it's the, if C and R are very high, you'll have a, a fast epidemic. If you, if, there, if you keep the ratio between C and R the same and lower them, then it will be a slow epidemic. But if you rescale, the, the two plots will be absolutely identical. Uh, so we, we, we have here a fairly slow epidemic. There were more and more stories being told about the Great Depression um, coming. So when we come into 2007 or 2008, uh, people are everyone knows the Great Depression story. And then what happened with the crisis is we had a bank run. Uh, they're not supposed to have them anymore. Uh, but we, but that me the memory of those panics of 18-whatever are still in people's mind. And the, the story of the Great Depression. Uh, and uh, it was amazing how quickly the Great Depression came back. Uh, it's not up... Well, it's still high. <laughs> it's still, we're more vulnerable to this narrative now than we were 10 years ago. Another, I'm almost done here. We can open up for questions. But another narrative that I think is, has been important is narrative, uh, I mean, it's a constellation of narratives, is narrative is about frugality versus conspicuous consumption. Uh, these go in and out, uh, I think, in a correlated way. Sometimes you don't want to show off. Sometimes it's the only way to be a success. You've got to show off. So I think we're right now, 
I'm talking particularly about the United States, but I bet the UK too, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm talking about uh, the, the, the Trump narrative. That is a huge and powerful storm of narratives that we have. Uh, so he wrote a book called Think Like a Billionaire. Everything you need to know about success, real estate, and life. <laughs> uh, so somehow, in order to know what the meaning of life is, you have to know how to think like a billionaire. <laughs> and you also have to know about real estate. <laughs> so, um, so I have a couple of quotes from his book. It's really amazing book. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, written by Meredith McIver, by the way. <laughs> but, but it really sounds so much like Trump that we, we know what she did. She's, she knows, you could do this too, right? If you could spend time with Trump in interviews, you could write it up and be Donald Trump. Right? We've kind of seen enough of this guy, we know. So, so she said, or he says, billionaires are not defined simply by the size of their holdings, but also by the quality of their stuff. <laughs> There's no point in being a billionaire if you can't enjoy those billions. To have the best, you have to know the best. Thinking like a billionaire means recognizing the best and enjoying the best. Of course it takes practice. <laughs> Can you confidently name the top six, five jewelers in the world? Who here can name the top five jewelers? <laughs> so you're, that's why you're not a success. <laughs> And then he goes down through a list of where to buy your clothes and things like that. But I was really struck by his cufflinks. The best cufflinks. The best cufflinks are the Trump five-star diamond cufflinks that Joe Sink of the five-star diamond awards gave to me. I keep some on hand to give to people as gifts. And they are great looking. Here they are up here. Well, this is some other uh, Trump cufflinks you can get. But uh, this is the one he's talking about. I also wear solid gold cufflinks from time to time, but I have to say I prefer Joe's Trump cufflinks. So if you really want to be a success in life, you can do solid gold cufflinks, but you should really go for Trump cufflinks. So, uh, by the way, these are huge bestsellers, these books that he writes. And he, so what Trump has done is spent, uh, I, I had an uh, article in The Guardian on, on Sunday, or Monday, I think, some of you might have seen it. Um, he spent 50 years purveying this narrative of himself as the, the rich and famous man. Uh, I think maybe he was uh, doing the right thing. Not many people would pursue this for 50 years. So that's why you, some of you can start this now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but uh, taking this, I also uh, am quoting from another time, uh, I find other examples, but this is Winifred Holt. Do you know Winifred Holtby? Uh, my assistant, uh, Caroline, she's here somewhere. There she is. You told me, but did you know who she was? Okay. You can look her up. She was a famous woman in the 19th, and wrote a column for the, the, called the Manchester Guardian. And she was talking about how we think now in the 30s compared with in the 20s. She says, dare to be poor. In other words, can we not use this period to get rid of a little snobbery and bunkum and live lives dictated by our own tastes instead of our neighbors' supposed notions of what is done? With so much to do in a world so rich in experience, 
must we shut ourselves up into little genteel compartments in which we all adapt the same arbitrary standards, wear the same things, eat the same things, and produce the same sad monotony of appearances. See, she doesn't get along with Trump very much. <laughs> uh, uh, Carolyn, you were saying she'd written a nice novel? East Riding. East Riding. I'm going to try reading it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, her narrative wasn't as strong. She did, I, I kind of like her, but she's not viral, uh, apparently. <laughs> so uh, there's lessons here about uh, success uh, that Donald Trump has. This is the American dream. Uh, in, in the early 1930s, James Truslow Adams wrote an inspiration for Americans book called The Epic of America, explaining why America is great. And he uh, talks about the American dream, which is uh, a, a, it's a dream of material things, but with a nice connotation. You want a nice motor car, uh, and it might be considered show-offy, but don't think of it that way. Think of it as an inspiration to your neighbors. When they see your car, <laughs> they'll think, I can do that too. And uh, unfortunately, poor Mr. Adams never witnessed his viral explosion. Uh, it went up, it's been going up steadily since uh, after, he died around sometime in the 40s. Uh, it took a lot of impetus from Martin Luther King, who borrowed, he had a famous speech uh, called the I Have a Dream speech, and he quotes uh, true, uh, Adam's uh, American dream and says that we, the under, the oppressed minority, are developing the American dream and we're all in this together. And it really went viral. And it was helped, I hate to say it, but by the assassination of Martin Luther King that occurred a few years later makes it to a wonderful story, right? It's tragic and that's that, that uh, I have a dream looks similar to this. And it, this is a case of a good narrative, I think. It uh, encourages peace and harmony. Uh, I, I'm almost done here, but, but uh, I said something about the bimetallism uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, how can that have gotten so... It doesn't sound interesting, does it? Or bimetallism is, you know, having both gold and silver coins that are both uh, at pair, uh, made to be uh, at par with the, with the dollar or pound or whatever. Uh, and so part of the thing is this book. Which I said it was in a, this was published in America uh, called uh, Coins Financial School. Uh, it's kind of like a comic book. It, it's filled with pictures. This is one of the pictures. So it's a book about a boy who's named Coin. It looks like he's about 15 years old. I don't know. And for some reason, he's lecturing the prominent men of New York, uh, uh, in including uh, Professor Laughlin from the University of Chicago, who's a real person. He kind of libeled these people, because uh, th these men, were, he's pr proposing bimetallism. These men are skeptical, and they start getting hostile. Who is this boy proposing this? So they, they hurl questions at him, and he always outsmarts them. Uh, I have this feeling this is emotionally parallel to the Bitcoin story because they had the same problem. Bitcoin was ridiculed by big-time financiers and it was a young person's thing. It, it, so I'm thinking that there really are kind of the same narrative in different time periods. Uh, and uh, then technological unemployment. This is a huge narrative now, but it's not having economic impact yet, but I, I think it could. Technological unemployment 
is a term coined in the, you can see, in the 19, well, in the late 1920s. And then it went hugely epidemic in the Great Depression. And uh, it is the story that robots will replace your jobs. And they actually said it just like that. They used, in 1930, they were talking about robots. Uh, there was already, um, there were, it goes back to a play in 1920 by um, Cheslov, no, I'm drawing a blank, called Rossum's Universal Robots that had some guy was making robots and they were actors on the stage dressed as robots. And, and then it, it, everyone thought it's wonderful we have robots replacing our, <coughs> I should get some water, need to work. But then the robots mass together and kill everybody. So, it's a, uh, so uh, uh, so right, right now it's in a different mutated form. It's an artificial intelligence uh, narrative. And I think it could come back if unemployment goes up. What happened in the Great Depression is this, the original labor-saving machinery narrative, which goes back to the Luddites in 1811, was talking largely about farm equipment or certain kind of mass production equipment. But uh, it started to get more generalized. The stories were more generalized about machines replacing jobs. This is the power age. They say, this, we live in the power age. You don't say that anymore, right? They talked about the whole horsepower of the world economy. It's something like 500 billion horsepower. And what, what do people matter with their puny muscles compared to all that? And so you're going to lose your job. And that forces you to then curtail your uh, expenditures. You, you think that unemployment is coming to me. And it's going to be permanent when it comes. So uh, as a little bit of evidence that this was a uh, popular view, I am quoting Albert Einstein. This is from an article in the Boston Globe newspaper uh, in 1933, which was an interview with Einstein, the physicist. Now, you all know Einstein, right? He has this phenomenal narrative, and I think it has to do with his disheveled hair. Well, he's looking groomed here, but there's various things about him that made it a vivid story. Um, but what he told the Globe in 1933, this is the greatest physicist ever, right? So he's supposed to be smarter than all of us. According to my conviction, it cannot be doubted, cannot be doubted, that the severe economic depression is to be traced back for the most part to internal economic causes, the improvement in the apparatus of production through technical invention and organization has decreased the need for human labor and thereby caused the elimination of a part of labor from the economic circuit and thereby caused a progressive decrease in the purchasing power of the consumers. So he was an economist too. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, I think it's very significant. We, that's not our narrative about the Depression, right? We're not impressed by the technology of the Depression. You could, they would write about it, good writers would write about it as amazing what's being done now with machinery. But, um, so, uh, well, this is a little bit messed up, but this is my uh, last thing about the future of narratives. Well, I'm saying that I think that there's a lot of interesting work and I don't have to say it, it's going to happen. It's already underway in economics. Uh, but I'm thinking that some kind of um, epidemic models will be part of a lot of economic models. Uh, and there will be searches of data 
uh, but I'm also thinking that we should today, governments collect old style Keynesian type data. They don't collect this. So who's collecting data? Now we do have newspapers and magazines that are already digitized. You can get them back to the 1500s, uh, some of them. But it's not a necessarily a good sample. It's a, it's a sample of newspapers and books that were saved rather than everything. Uh, and uh, attention to good uh, methods could be uh, called for. The other thing is that we have a lot of questionnaire surveys, and I've been doing them myself. Where they, they, what they seem to think is that we want to ask questions that are relevant right now, and they tend to stop asking them afterwards. There are some, like for the consumer confidence indices, we'll ask the same question year after year, and that's good. Uh, but I'm thinking that also it's not enough because you ask, are you confident? What does that mean from time to time? What, you know, stories motivate people in complex ways. And so we have to kind of save the stories that people are talking to each other about before they're lost forever. It's not just that they would, that, uh, the, the economists may not, they may miss big motivations. Like um, I, I mentioned, uh, well, if you think about uh, anger as a motivation, the, nobody asks about are you angry at businesses? Well, maybe they do once, but they don't have a time series on that. Uh, and so boycotts, uh, people will just casually boycott profiteers. Uh, and uh, or also mention, I mentioned the frugality narrative. It becomes a moral, people think in moral terms often. That's not represented in most economic theory. That I'm not gonna, you know, or, or maybe I will spend because we have unemployment, but. Those things um, matter for economic dynamics. So uh, that's my prediction for the future. And I'll stop here and see if there are any questions. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you very much, Bob. That was extremely inspiring and, uh, and stimulating. So we have about 20 minutes for questions. Um, please put your hand up. I'll try to call on you at a time. We'll do one question at a time and just say your name and briefly affiliation, like you're a student at LSE or something of that sort. And I'll try to call on several of you. So put your hands up so that I start picking on you. So I'll start with this lady over here. There's a, oh, sorry, there's a microphone coming, so please wait for the microphone to come. Thank you very much for the brilliant discussion. Uh, I'm Kofei, I'm a PhD student. I'm working on how, uh, what market narratives can tell us about the international accounting standard for valuing financial instruments. And my question for you today is that, what in your opinion are the direct implications of narrative economics for or regulators who are desperate to maintain financial stability and to provide early warning signals in all walk of life. Yeah, I think that uh, reg regulators are uh, already intuitive because they're people, they're human beings. They already know about uh, the importance of narratives, even though they didn't learn about it in graduate school. So for example, when, is this picking up? Yeah. In uh, uh, 2007, when Northern Rock uh, failed, uh, uh, well, when it was subjected to a run, people thought that they, although there was deposit insurance in the UK, 
it, it cut off at a low level, like 7,500 pounds. That's low because some people have their whole retirement money in the Northern Rock Bank. So it was a panic when, uh, when it looked like it might fail. And your government uh, bailed them out. It raised the limit ex post uh, on, on the insurance. Because they, I think, uh, they knew that you don't want to get people worried. It'll affect all many other banks if you get worried about a bank run. And so that was intuitive, and they did the right thing. But the, uh, the, the problem is that if it's something that nobody talks about until suddenly you wake up, you, you're the chancellor, and somebody comes in and says, we have the, uh, a failure of a bank. We haven't, a bank run has happened. You have like two hours to think about and figure this out on your own intuition. You want to have some scholarly work and some established views on this. Okay, next question. Let me try over here. That gentleman over there. Thank you very much. My name's Duncan Bartlett. I'm a journalist. Um, the narratives about economics change a lot, don't they, depending on which country you're looking at. So, for example, in China, where there's a lot of state control of the media, the narrative is generally very upbeat. But in other countries like the UK, you'll see a lot of um, stories raising concerns about what's going to happen to the economy. So is the press then having an impact in what happens next to the economic cycles? Uh, yes, yeah, so this was a theme. I actually spoke here about my other book, Irrational Exuberance. I have a whole chapter on the press. And I think that the, uh, the press uh, has a complicated uh, relationship to narratives. First of all, they can spread really fast. Even the long ago press, when it was all just printing press, uh, they could... Uh, they could, uh, I, I quote in my book uh, a, a letter to the editor to the New London Gazette. You may not have heard of it. That's New London, America. Uh, they had a newspaper. And one re reader <laughs> mailed in, everybody, is, this is during the recession of 1765. He said, everybody is talking about the recession. And the words I keep hearing is, there is no money. And that he tried to do some calculations. And he said, you know, I think it's about 50 million times a day those words are repeated in the colonies. Uh, now, I think he is over, that's an overestimate because there were only 3 million people <laughs> in the colonies. <laughs> but it shows how something like the New London Gazette was effective even back there with such primitive technology. So the newspapers were, there, there weren't hardly any evidence of speculative bubbles before there were newspapers. The first speculative bubble reported, reported is the tulip mania. And that was just at the beginning. There were newspapers and broadsheets and pamphlets starting to be printed uh, at that time. And I think that that's why it happened. It wouldn't, communication wouldn't be as effective. But I have to say that since you're a journalist, I want to point out that I feel that people who go into journalism do have idealistic purposes. Uh, it's not a field you would go in if you have if you think like a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Let me go up there and um, let me go to this gentleman over here. Hi, Robert. Thanks for your talk. My name's James. I'm a master student here at LSE. Um, I saw an interview that you did yesterday with Bloomberg. We talked about some of the current narratives around. 
um, the recession and economics in general. I wanted to ask you to clarify a certain point. You said that at some point in the near future, you wouldn't be surprised if there was a decline in house prices in a recession. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit, please? Well, the last recession uh, in uh, 2007 to 2009 was preceded by uh, an intensely enthusiastic uh, attitude toward home prices. Uh, I did questionnaire surveys, but in my surveys, I invite them to write in answers. Uh, So I, I have things that they volunteered. And I went back and looked to see how many of them said housing bubble in, say, 2003, 2004. No mention of housing bubble. Then I went to look to see, did they mention flipping houses? Uh, that's, a, that's a speculative practice of buying a house, doing cosmetic improvements, and selling it again, hoping to make a profit six months later. Uh, that didn't come in in 2003 either. It was generally, uh, it came in in 2005, 2006, just before the crisis. So the people were talking about housing bubble, the Economist ran a cover story uh, about the housing bubble in 2005. Um, and uh, so the talk was changing. And uh, the, the, the talk about flippers uh, was generally disparaging or ridiculing them. Uh, so uh, when home prices started to fall, it, uh, the, the Economist cover in 2005 uh, had a picture of a brick falling. And it said it was labeled with a like, housing bubble or something, uh, the coming crash. And I don't remember the exact words. but So the, the narrative was changing around that time. Uh, but it didn't seem to be noticed uh, that, it, that it could have a big effect. So right now, I'm still doing surveys. I've got one just sent out, but I haven't looked at the results yet. But, but the, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be as extreme as either the up or down from the previous period. Uh, and so I don't, uh, I don't see strong implications. But I, I, that was a big event that we had, as you know, 10 years ago, uh, and a big international event. Uh, I don't see it as quite as dramatic now, so I'm waiting to see if it does. But I, I think that one thing that strikes... Uh, I've just been saying this, so I'll say it again here, that the, uh, the, the last bubble, the boom in home prices that preceded the Great Recession, as it's called, uh, in 2008, it was growing at uh, home prices were growing at like over 10 percent a year, uh, year after year, and then it started to slow down, uh, and it peaked in 2006. But you had several years of slowing home prices and then decline. So now we're seeing the same thing. Where we had after 2012 in the United States, according to my home price indices, uh, the Case Shiller and S&P Case Shiller indices. Uh, home prices uh, were going up over 10% a year from a low level where they had been. And now they're slowing down. Lately, it's more like 3% a year. Uh, so I could see it. Uh, I, I've been saying I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw declines in home prices. But I'm not predicting a catastrophe. We've had ups and downs in home prices before. And it didn't, usually didn't yield a, uh, a, a colossal recession. But I'm, I mean, just thinking abstractly, not in terms of any direct evidence, this artificial intelligence story seems to be, could be, become viral again in a uh, scary way, if we, if the, in reaction to higher unemployment. Very good. I'll ask one more. The lady here in the second row. 
my name is Alice. I'm studying a master in economics and philosophy here at LSE. And I was wondering if we suppose that there are sources or carriers of those um, narratives, what is the impact of them believing or not in the narrative that they propagate? And could this like um, make the spread of the narrative greater or actually could a more opportunistic mind calculate and encompass better what they should tell the audience to make this narrative spread more? I'm not sure I understand what makes a narrative Stronger? Yes, and what, what is the role of uh, someone that's propagating the narrative? What is the importance of them believing or not in their narrative? Oh, believing in the yes, narrative. Yes, believing in the narrative. Does it make it spread more or yeah. less? Well, I, I don't have an authoritative answer to that, but I think that uh, people who want to spread narratives practice believing in it while there's... You, you know, you can't control your emotions. Uh, if, maybe they teach this in acting school. But you, you have to, when you're acting in a play, you have to put yourself in a mood that I believe this. And I think it becomes habit-forming after a while. When, when you, now when your identity is a, a, a associated with a certain narrative, that you thought, well, it might be right, but now that I'm admired for this narrative, I'm, I'm really become attached, and I forget my doubts. Uh, I don't know who, what authority has proven this, but it seems to me it's something that happens all the time. Uh, but you have to, uh, you have to, um, uh, you have to actually let yourself. It's like fake wrestling. I think those fake wrestlers, they uh, maybe they really do get mad at each other because they they, they have to pretend that this is real, uh, and because you can't uh, fake your emotions uh, without playing mental tricks like that. So, for example, there's something called the Duchenne smile, which. Uh, uh, the Dr. Duchenne discovered a um, hundred years ago. He noticed that when people have a genuine smile, it, uh, in, looking at the muscles activated, the muscles that circle around your eyes contract. And so your eyes do something subtle. And uh, uh, you, those are involuntary muscles. So the only way you can control those it's called, uh, oculus, I forgot the name of them, oculus circularis, something like that. The only way you can control them is by thinking happy thoughts. And uh, then it goes into the, um, uh, I'm not that good at medicine here. <laughs> what is it called? Autonomous nervous system and you do a genuine smile. Uh, and actors learn how to do things like that. That's a long answer based just on my common knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Let me ask the gentleman there over there in the corner. Hi, Bob. Uh, it's Nima. I'm a PhD in finance and work uh, as a, a risk analyst at Invesco. I've got a quick question. I appreciate, I appreciate that we uh, just talk about what happened in history. Just wanted to know your view about what's coming. So obviously we got all the reasons to have that panic uh, with the trade war or just whatever happened in the market. Uh, but it seems like we do get that panic, uh, but it's not really contagious and it's very temporary. So I just wanted to know your view, like what would trigger that we would just like find ourselves in another recession, given that you managed to predict the last two recession. Oh yeah, I, I'm not. I, I, I keep getting on this book tour of mine. I've been getting reporters asking me to give a real forecast, and uh, I, I have to resist it because I I don't know, and uh, they want a quote. Uh, so uh, so what's happening now that? Uh, 
there's, there's an emerging talk of a worldwide recession. And this is partly data-driven. If you look at the IMF World Economic Outlook, uh, they talk about a slowdown globally uh, and uh, in, the, in just in a few months. So that's news. That could start a self-fulfilling prophecy if people think that that's important. But there are other things that are happening that I've been looking at. One of them is the uh, attention to the inverted yield curve, uh, where uh, short rates are, are uh, higher than long rates. Uh, and this uh, has been meticulously talked about lately. Now, it's not exactly a narrative. It is sort of a narrative. There are some people. Campbell Harvey wrote an article about it in 30 years ago, uh, and it did help launch this uh, epidemic of uh, attention to inverted yield curve. But I, I did a, a search for the term inverted yield curve, and I found that it goes back 100 years, but hardly ever mentioned. And, uh, and it, there, some people would say there's an inverted yield curve, and they didn't say why that was important. Uh, and, uh, and it was uh, pretty rare. But then it started to come in around the 1970s, and it's only spoken of when, the, when there's an inverted yield curve, or what's close to inverted. Uh, but each time there's an inverted yield curve, a recession follows. And each time that happens, the talk about the inverted yield curve becomes even bigger the next time. So this is the biggest talk uh, about the inverted yield curve ever that we're just experiencing now. And it tempts me to think that it's all, all fake. I mean, it's, all, it's not fake. It's, all, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There, there was some, someone noticed vaguely that the inverted yield curve might look like a, a leading indicator of a recession. Uh, and it happened, and then it caused a recession. Then the next time the curve got almost inverted, they remembered the last time, and that created yet another recession. Uh, so it's what V.F. Skinner called magical thinking, where you can create a uh, epidemic, you can create a, a leading indicator as a self a re caused by repeated self-fulfilling prophecies. I don't know if that's what happened, but it seems. Then we even have a theory that why it explains it that, that it's because long-term interest rate represents long-term expectations for the economy. I don't know. Uh, it's convenient, but I'm suspicious of the whole. But that doesn't mean it won't work again this time. So there's a lot of people think that we're in near a recession now because of the inverted yield curve. And it caused the Fed to start cutting rates because they, didn't want, they wanted to break that. Maybe it was narrative economics. They won't say this, but they didn't want the narrative to keep going that we've got an increasingly inverted yield curve. Very good. We have time for one last question. And given the future, I was going to go to the young gentleman here in the front who seems like a very precocious LSE future student. So wait for the microphone, Wait Matthew. for the mic. <laughs> no, it's coming to you. It's on your left. Uh, my name is Matthew Howard. I'm a student at Winchester College. And I wondered that one narrative that had been going around recently in the media was uh, the universal basic income. Oh, right, right. And I wondered what was your opinion on that. So. OK. Uh, the universal basic income, the earliest mention I can find of that was by a book called Agrarian Justice written in 1795 by Thomas Paine. And he thought, it wasn't exactly the current story, he thought that farm labor uh, is suffering because we've, we have too much, 
people, not enough jobs for them. So he wanted a, he didn't call it a universal basic income. He proposed it in 1795, and nobody liked it. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a failed <laughs> proposal. It came back in again in 1873 with Henry George, who I pointed out. Henry George proposed a universal basic income during the depression of the 1870s. Uh, and uh, 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 that's why he was so famous, I think. Uh, it, it, people don't describe it in exactly, they don't use the word universal basic income. Then it was proposed again in the 1940s by Juliet Reese Williams here, Reese Williams or Reese Wilson, I'm sorry, Reese Williams here in the UK uh, uh, in a pamphlet that she wrote. Uh, but again, it was forgotten uh, shortly, shortly thereafter. Uh, and then Milton Friedman talked about it. Uh, lots, it, it seemed to be accelerating now. Uh, and it seemed to associate itself with uh, 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 technological unemployment talk. Uh, and it's growing and growing, um, but it's expensive. And uh, people don't really want, it would be giving everybody a basic income that they can live on. So, uh, but uh, we're seeing more experiments on it recently. Uh, uh, maybe it's necessary. We'll find out. We'll, we'll see where we're going. But it is, it is an impressive narrative. Well, you know, you might even track it back to ancient Rome. They had bread and circus, which was given to everyone. You could get grain. Anybody, any citizen could get grain. And you could free admission to the circus. <laughs> so, uh, that's an important narrative. You're right. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. And especially thank you.